Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. You may be seated. Awesome. So we are in for a treat today. Uh, as you all can see, Jay Will, uh, our fearless leader, is not here today. But um, we have someone who I believe is very capable of filling the pulpit today, and that is none other than our very own uh, Dennis Yeoman. So um, in the time I get, yeah, I mean, clap it up, really. <laughs> No doubt, no doubt. I, w- I want to say a quick prayer. Come on up here, brother. Um, I just want to say that I- I've- I'm privileged to get to have known this brother. Um, it's funny how, you know, a guy from all over like me and a fella from Boston, you know, can get so close in such a short time. But I'm always of the belief, man, that, like, you don't always have to know people long to get to know them well. And I feel like that about my brother here. So um, real quick, though, we have the giving link um, just in case you want to give and support uh, what we're doing here at uh, – City of Refuge, it's, it's not just going in anybody's pockets for partnering with uh, other church plans, for partnering with ministries throughout the community. Um, we have our brother uh, Mitchell here, who is a church intern, um, who's doing great things. He preached for us last week, did an amazing job. So um, if, you, if, if you will, if you, if you feel it in your heart and feel compelled to give, please go to the link there. Um, you'll see it as a link to Riverside Community Church, but if you click on the drop down, you'll see a City Refuge church plant. And you can give your, your uh, tithes and offering there. So grateful for what God is doing. Grateful for what his brother is getting ready to minister. And if you don't mind, I'll say a quick prayer for you, man. Father, we thank you uh, for this brother here, for his willingness to share your word, for his willingness, God, to take the time to really dig in and prepare a message for your people. And I believe you've given him something to say. And I ask to God that you would touch his heart, touch his mind, give him clarity of thought, clarity of speech. I pray, God, that above all, though, that he would rest in you and be confident in the gifts that you've given him. And may your spirit guide each and every word, each and every mannerism, each and every gesture, uh, any way, God, that you've given Dennis uh, to present your word today. I pray that you be glorified in it. Um, And I pray that you bless our hearts and minds and our ears, make us attuned to your word. And let us leave here, God, not the same way that we came. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My mic, my mic on? Can you hear me? Well, like Wayne said, my name is Denny Yeoman, and it is a privilege to be up here this afternoon. Stacy, who was up here reading the call to worship earlier, we've been part of City of Refuge since just about the very beginning. I remember when we were in a small group with Wayne and Fee and Jay Will and Crystal, and it is encouraging to see what God continues to do through this young church plant. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts 9, verse 1. We'll be reading 1 all the way down to verse 31 today. We'll be considering what this message about the transformation of Saul means for us. So I'm going to read the scripture, we'll pray, and we'll get started. It says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. 
Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand, and they led him into Damascus. He wasn't able to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In the vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument. Take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell down from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Immediately, he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who is causing havoc for those who called on this name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners for the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea, Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church through all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, I just thank you for this scripture reading today, Lord. It is beautiful to see how you sovereignly transform not only the church, but Saul and in the mission of the church does not fail, Lord. I pray that as we consider this text, as we hear my words, Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would preach through me to these people and we would leave here transformed understanding your character and your mission better. In Jesus' name, amen. What we come to today is what I consider to be the ultimate transformation story. At one level, we see the transformation of the church. Coming into chapter 9, we have a church that is made up of Jewish believers in the Messiah. But through the transformation of Saul, what is going on here is that the persecutor will become the persecuted 
expanding the mission of God all the way now to the Gentiles. And all of us who are here today are thankful for that because through this mission, the, the grace of God is now opened up to the entire world. And at another level, we see the transformation of Saul. Coming in, on, in, in verse 1, there is almost no one more unlikely to be saved than Saul. We met him back in seven and eight, chapter 7 and 8, where he was standing over Stephen, as Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the name of Jesus. In, in the beginning of 8, he agrees, and he's going from house to house, and it says he's ravaging the church. When we meet him in the beginning of chapter 9, it says he is breathing threats. It is almost like his inner being, his very character, is that of a persecutor. I love transformation stories, and I'm sure most of us here do today. Growing up, my favorite movie was the movie Rudy. So if you're not familiar with that, it's a story about a runt that goes to Notre Dame and wants to be part of the football team. But the thing is, he's very short, he's slow, and he's not a very good football player. But in the movie, you watch a transformation from the ultimate outsider into an insider by the end who gets a chance to play and makes a spectacular play. And the movie ends with him being hoisted on people's shoulders. Or my personal favorite transformation story, because I'm a history teacher, is that of Chuck Colson. So for those who've never heard of Chuck Colson, he was a lawyer for Richard Nixon back in the early 1970s. In 1972, Colson and Nixon devised a plan where they would go break into the Watergate Hotel, steal the papers from the Democratic National Committee, and they were going to use this to help them win the election. Now, Nixon wins by a landslide, but what happens is the trick is found out. While Nixon gets pardoned, Chuck Colson becomes the face of shame in America. He represents everything that is wrong with America, the greed, the lying of Washington, D.C. But just before he goes to prison, he meets Christ, and he is converted in a really powerful way. And as he goes into prison, he spends his time reading the scriptures, learning Jesus, actually discipling those in his cell. And when he comes out, he begins a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which today is still discipling men and women around the world. We love transformation stories. And this story today is nothing less than perhaps one of the greatest transformation stories in Scripture. So we meet Saul in, chapter, in verse 1, and he is on his way to Damascus, and it says that he has letters from the synagogues. Now what that means here is that he has gone to the Sanhedrin, and he has got an official paper which allows him to go to Damascus, which is about a three-day journey, and go into every synagogue and basically arrest the people there who believe in Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. But as he is going on this journey of persecution, he meets Jesus. And he's, in verse 4, he hears the words of Christ saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, the one who are persecuting. So the first thing we learn from this text today is the lesson that God can save anyone. Going into this, as I said earlier, there is no one more unexpected to be saved than Saul of Tarsus. And this morning as we gather here, I wonder who the person that is most unexpected to meet Jesus is in your life. I know in my own life there is family members and there is friends that I think are almost outside of the grace of God. I have one friend in particular who if he called me tomorrow morning, 
and said, I'm a Christian, Denny, I would probably pass out. And I think my wife would too. But what we don't understand there is that we serve a God who is close to this world. He is simply waiting to peel back the veil of heaven and snatch a sinner on his way to hell. It is an easy work for the Lord to do. So what that means for us today, as we consider this, is we keep praying. We keep sharing. We don't give up on those who have not come yet because their time may have not come yet, and we continue to wait, hopefully, because God is close at hand. The second thing we see here in the beginning of this text is that persecuting the church is the same thing as persecuting Christ. The words that Saul hears here is, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Have, has Saul ever met Jesus in person? I don't think so. But what we learn here is that when we persecute the body of Christ, we are persecuting Jesus himself. If you would turn with me for a minute to Ephesians 1.22, I think this helps us clarify the relationship between Jesus and the church just a little better. In Ephesians 1.22, we see it says God about Jesus, and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So what we learn here is that in a very real spiritual sense, the fullness of Christ dwells in the body. So when we do harm to members of the church, we are in many ways doing harm to the body of Christ. And it's something that Christ takes very seriously. He yells to Saul here, why are you persecuting me? Now, I don't think anyone here today is actively trying to destroy the mission of the church. If we do, that's a different sermon a different discussion, but I wonder what subtle ways you come in here today and you are harming, in subtle, like I said, subtle ways, members of the body. This looks like in all different ways, gossip, slander. Maybe it is just deciding that there is someone you don't want to invite into your crowd because they're not like you. What we learn in this text is that whenever we do harm to the body of Jesus, Jesus sees it as us doing harm to his very body that he has organized to take the mission of God into the world. And we know as Christians that every single member in Christ has been chosen before the foundation of the world to be in Christ Jesus. So when we are persecuting, or when we are harming Christians, we are doing a great disservice to his name. But we also learn here in the beginning is that if you're going to be a Christian, you better be part of the church. Now, we have, been, we have come out of a time, COVID-19, where there are many reasons for being a little distant from the church. There was reasons that we might watch it online, not attend in person, maybe not attend a small group. But what we see here is that it is not an optional thing to be part of the church. When I first became a Christian, I was 27 years old. And I joined a church, and I was really excited, and I was like, I'm going to do this Christian thing. So I joined almost every group there. I was in a men's group, outreach group. I was like, every day of the week, I was just at church. But about two months into it, I remember looking around the sanctuary and saying, I don't know if I like these people here. 
These aren't the kind of people that I have hung out with in my life. These people are strange sometimes. And what I started doing is I started pulling back a little bit from the body that I had, I had uh, committed to serve. And I remember about a month into this, the pastor of the church called me aside and he asked me why I hadn't been going to the different men's meetings or outreach that I had signed up for. And I said, I just don't think these people are my kind of people. And in that moment, I learned that the body of, the, the Jesus' body is how we, one of the ways we experience Jesus on this earth. Now, most of you guys were with us this spring when we found out, when Stacey and I found out 20 weeks, that um, the baby she was carrying was no longer alive. And perhaps in maybe the strongest way in my entire life, I saw this reality. I saw that the very body of Jesus himself functions through the church. When we were too broken, when we were too down to connect with God and read scriptures, you all were there bringing us meals, praying for us, acting as the body, with the fullness dwelling of Christ in the body, bringing it to us when we couldn't come to him ourselves. And this is what we learn here, and I believe this is what Saul learns here in the beginning of this. And additionally, as we go into Planet Church in Eau Claire, one of the main things that we can show people is an authentic community. People are looking. They're looking for something compelling. And what is more compelling than a bunch of diverse people living together on mission, loving one another, and in many cases, the only thing they have in common is Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture, and it is something that people can't help but notice. Well, moving, moving into verse 10, we meet a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias is a regular guy in Damascus who all of a sudden hears a vision from the Lord saying, Ananias. And he says, here I am. And he tells him to go to Saul of Tarsus and lay hands on this guy, and he'll regain his sight. Now, Ananias pushed back, pushes back a little bit, which it's hard to not understand that, right? The one guy that has come to Damascus to arrest him and drag him back, who's breathing murderous threats, God says, go lay hands on him in an intimate way. Actually get close enough to touch him, and he'll regain his sight. But Ananias is faithful. And what I think we see here in this part of the text is that God moves his mission along by the work of everyday people being faithful. The church, we could say, runs on ordinary folks. During the pandemic, I heard this term over and over again, and you did too, and the term was essential worker. And what, that, what we heard was that there's people in America and throughout the world that we can't do it without. Cops, firefighters, nurses, if they didn't go to work, it would shut down. And what I'm here to tell you this afternoon is that all of us here are essential workers. We are essential in the mission of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, I'm not going to turn there for time's sake, but what Paul talks about in there is the different parts of the body. And he gives you this image of the hands and the feet and the eye, and they're working together to accomplish one purpose. And Ananias clearly understands this because he trusts God enough to go to Saul, and as he does so, he becomes an integral piece of Saul becoming apostle to the Gentiles. In preparing for this, I read, I was reading about the theology of salvation, and Wayne Grudem says this, who's a prominent New Testament scholar. He says there's three aspects of salvation. The first one is knowledge. You have to know what the gospel is, who Jesus is. 
The second one is agreement, meaning you have to agree that it's true. Right? We can all agree on this. But the third part cuts to the heart a little more. And what we see there is that we have to trust God for our salvation and trust him with our life. And you might be asking yourself, what gives Ananias the courage to go lay hands on Saul? And what I think it is, is that he knows the character of God. He knows the character of God. And today, in the American church, we face tremendous, tremendous uphill battles. Things like debates about sexuality, politics, racial tension. There's a number of things that if we are to engage people, there's going to be pushback against. But what we can count on as we engage in this mission is God's character. And what is God's character? Well, remember when Jesus told his disciples, he said to him, I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's the character of God. That is what we can lean on as we engage in these difficult conversations. God continues to build his church, and by his grace, he uses us, messed up, flawed, sometimes even down and out people who just respond to his grace and faith, and he uses us. Well, in this same part of the narrative in verse 16, we see a transition of sorts in this text. We see uh, God tell Ananias that he is going to show Saul how much he must suffer for his name. Now, the reason this is a transformational part of this text here is that this is the moment that we start to understand what God is doing with Saul. He is transforming his church. Like I said in the beginning, this is not just about Saul's transformation. It is also about the church coming from one place into an expanded version where the Gentiles all around the world throughout time and history will now be reached. And one thing that I think is so interesting here from now until the rest of the text is that Saul's suffering and his mission are, t- are tied together. They go hand in hand. If you just kind of go with me through the text here for a minute, Saul, Saul gets his sight back in verse 19, and then in verse 20, 20, he is proclaiming the word of Jesus, and he's continuing to do it in 22. He's getting stronger and stronger, but then what happens? Suffering enters the picture. He has tried to, they try to kill him, and he has to escape through a wall in a basket. And then we get to see him in Jerusalem. What happens? He's there to preach the gospel, but he enters suffering. The disciples there will not speak to him. He is the man that they've been, he's been trying to, they've been trying to destroy him. So they keep him at a distance. Barnabas plays the guy that kind of orchestrates the, the introduction, and we see Paul speaking boldly. But what happens then? They try to kill him again, and he is sent off to Tarsus. So for, throughout this book of Acts, throughout the rest of his life, Saul enters a cycle of suffering and mission, suffering and mission. And what Saul says here, and what we can take from this, is that this is the plan for our lives as well. Even though Saul's, Saul's call here is very specific, it is the same God today that we serve. And what we see here is that there is a cycle of suffering where Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians 4.16 that as we suffer, the outer man is wasting away and the inner man is being renewed. So as we suffer, there is a sort of death, burial, and resurrection that occurs over and over again. Think for a moment about a time you've had to suffer. You come to a moment at some point in the journey 
where you realize that this is really happening. And when you get there, you have no choice but to let go of something. I don't care if it's a person, a dream, a hope, but when you let go of that thing, you enter a death of sorts, and you descend down into the pain. You guys have been there? Yeah. It feels like death, right? But at some point, you begin to come out of it, and this is the resurrection cycle. And as you come out of it, you know Jesus a little better, and you are reoriented in the way you see things. You come out with a little less faith in the world around you, a little less confidence in the flesh. And as you do this over and over again, your holiness grows and your ability to be on mission grows because you continue to count your life a loss. You have seen this cycle play out again and again. And this is how Paul engages his life. And this is what allows him to be on mission. It is what Paul Miller, the author, calls a J-curve. It is constantly descending into death and being resurrected. And as you do that, you know Christ better. It is the way we change. It is the what we are called to. Well, going into the next part of this, we see Saul proclaiming the Messiah. So he's with the Damascus. He was the disciples in Damascus, and he's proclaiming Jesus. And even though he has to escape, he's proclaiming Jesus again in Jerusalem. The first thing we see about Paul's mission here is that it's constant. I don't know if any of you have ever been around someone that just is so passionate about something. I have a friend at home that is in real estate, and every discussion you have with him, it's like he is looking at you. He is waiting for you to say something where he can talk about houses. It's like, I mow my lawn today. It's like, oh, is that lawn in front of a new house? And it constantly goes, he's waiting. And this is how I envision Saul. I see him as reading people and waiting for the moment where he can tell them about his experience being the Messiah and also about how they can know this Messiah as well. So it is constant. But the second thing we see about Paul's mission, and I believe this is one of the most important things for the church to get today, is that it is contextualized. And what I mean by contextualized, I have to explain this, because last night I, said, I told Stacy, I said, contextualized. I said, everyone knows what that means, every single person. She said, you're going to have to explain it. So <laughs> what, what, we're, what I mean here is that Paul is able to figure out what questions people are asking and apply the gospel to it. If you look with me to verse 20, it says that he is immediately proclaiming. And later on in 22, it says that he is proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What question would Jews in the synagogue at this time be asking? When's the Messiah coming, right? And this term proving in Greek has this idea of putting things together. So what is Paul doing or Saul doing? He is going there and he is saying, oh, you're looking for the Messiah? Here he is in the Old Testament. There he is in the Old Testament. He's proving it. Now, they push back, which happens to us too when we're on mission sometimes, right? But that is what he is doing. He is contextualizing the gospel. He is giving it to them in a way that makes sense to them and in a way that they want to hear it, possibly. And later on, we see him with the Hellenistic Jews. So in verse 29, it says he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. So for those of us that know the word Hellenistic, it means a Greek sort of Jew, right? Greek culture, maybe Greek language, Greek upbringing. And what do we know about Greek people? Think of, the, think of the terms of ancient philosophers, Plato, Socrates, right? What do they like to do? They like to debate. They like to converse. Again, Saul is meeting them where they're at, and he is going in there, and he 
is using what they like to do to explain the Messiah to them. And this is something that we need to get in the church. God can work through our mistaken evangelism. Don't get me wrong. But we are called to be wise. And as we are wise, we listen, we figure out who people are, and we apply the gospel to that question they're asking. I work with teenagers, and the question that teenagers are asking is, who am I supposed to be? The gospel answers that in a very deep way. Think about the young parent that's exhausted. What's their question? Will I ever get rest that will last? The gospel answers that question. The person in the midlife crisis saying, is this all there is to life? The gospel answers that question. We need to be able to know people well enough to apply the gospel in a way that answers the question that they are asking. Last year, two years ago, at Ben Lippin, where I teach, uh, a pastor came in, very well-meaning, but he was an older gentleman, and he came in and gave a really harsh uh, sermon of sorts on abortion. So that after that, we had class, and there was a young girl that was sitting in my classroom, and she was crying. So after the class, I uh, went over and I said, you know, what's going on here? And she was just so upset. Now, I don't know if she had had an abortion or if it was just something that really triggered her. But she would just say, I cannot believe that he said that. I'm pro-life. So I started off going through all of the reasons why abortion is wrong. You know, we are, God, God is there at our conception. Like, we, like every single argument I could, I could make. And her face is just like, all right, whatever. And I realized in that conversation that she wasn't asking whether or not it was true. What she was asking me was whether it was good. Was God good? And that changed the entire dynamic. Because as I was sitting there explaining to her why this is true, she was not worried about whether it was true. Even if it was true, she was wondering, maybe this isn't good. So I had to learn how to contextualize and apply the gospel in a way that makes sense to her. Well, this is quite the long passage. There's been a lot going on here. We've seen Saul be saved and, and learn about the church and We've seen Ananias being able to function as a regular guy that is just an integral, integral part of the mission. And we've learned about Paul's evangelism. And we come to the end here, and it's, in, again, now Saul is sent off to Tarsus because they're trying to kill him again. This will be the pattern of Paul's life. It's not an easy one. And we see in verse 31, it says, The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Now, before I talk any more about this, I want to, hold on one second. I want to read a quick verse that I think parallels this well. And it is 1 Timothy 1, 12. Probably should have marked that before I came up. So, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 12. And this is Paul speaking much later in his life about this testimony about God's goodness to him. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. As we finish off this 
chapter of Acts 9 today, I hope that we can understand just how close God is, that we serve a saving God. That I said earlier, we save a God that is at the veil and all he is very close to us. All he has to do is peel it back and anyone at any time can be brought into the kingdom. So what do we do in response to this? As we go into Eau Claire, we are engaging a place where brokenness is very much worn on the sleeve, right? There's brokenness in every neighborhood in this, neighborhood, in this, in this city, but in Eau Claire, oftentimes the brokenness is just a little easier to see. And as we go... We must be able to get close enough to people, trusting God's character, and be able to apply the gospel in the way and to the questions they are actually asking. And as we do this, I believe that we will continue to see God's grace at work. If he can save Saul the persecutor, Denny Yulman, the 27-year-old who has nothing to do with Jesus, he can save anyone, and that is a glorious thing. There's an old hymn that I like called God Saves Old Sinners. And I'm just going to read a few lines from it. It says, I am so glad God saves old sinners. I'm thrilled and amazed how he sets them free. But the biggest surprise in redeeming old sinners is that he could save an old sinner like me. As we close today, let that be something that's always on our lips and in our hearts. Let's remind ourselves of the grace of God. He loves us. He's building his church. It will not be stopped, and he's gracious enough to use us in that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to speak on your word today, Lord. I pray that everything I say, Lord, uh, that the truth of what I said will go out and change hearts, Lord. If anything I didn't say that was, didn't line up, Lord, I pray that it will just fall away, Lord. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word that endures, Lord, and I thank you that you are a God will see your church succeed and built, and nothing, not even the persecutor Saul, will stop it. In Jesus' name, amen.